We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church in Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but in the mid-90s, computers and the internet and this company called AOL were insanely popular. Now, I can remember when I would get the free, like, 100 hours of AOL free disc in the mail. It was, like, enough to check your email, like, three times. You would connect, you'd hear, like, and then, like, 15 minutes later, you would hear this voice. And if you were really lucky, the voice would say, you've got mail. And it was such a cultural phenomenon that they actually made a movie about it. It starred Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, maybe you've seen it. Now, when you heard that voice, you got excited. Like, you couldn't wait to find out, oh, who sent me an email? You check that email, and hopefully it was good news. But sometimes you get what I call good news, bad news. Have you ever had that? Somebody says, oh, I've got good news, and I've got bad news. I found a couple of jokes. These are my favorite good news, bad news jokes. One day a man decided to go skydiving. So when it got time for him to jump out of an airplane, he jumps, and he had a parachute. And that was good news. The bad news was the parachute malfunctioned and didn't open the good news was he saw a haystack down below. The bad news was that there was a pitchfork sticking up in the haystack. The good news is that when he landed, he missed the pitchfork. The bad news is that he missed the haystack. So there's good news and bad news. You go to the doctor, and the doctor says, I've got good news, and I've got bad news. This one particular patient, he goes to the doctor, and he says, all right, give me the good news first, doc. He says, you have 24 hours to live. The patient says, how in the world could that possibly be good news? If that's the good news, what's the bad news? He says, I've been trying to reach you since yesterday. <laughs> so there's good news and bad news. And this morning, and Jesus, as he speaks to the church in Sardis, it starts out like he's saying, there's some good news. But in truth, it's all bad. After describing Jesus as the one who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars, this is what John writes. Let me invite you to stand this morning as we read God's word. Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John starts by describing Jesus as the one who holds the seven stars, or the, I mean the, the, the seven spirits and the seven stars in his hand. And then Jesus speaks. He speaks to his church. He says, I know your deeds. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, on first glance, that idea of you have the reputation of being alive, that's, that's good news. You think, well, you know, he's speaking positively to the church, but he continues, he says, but you are dead. This is the one church which Jesus has so far found nothing to commend in a positive sense. 
He finds nothing about this particular church, about these people, their attitudes, and their conduct for which he can encourage them on. Sardis was the capital city of Lydia. It was founded about 1,200 years before the birth of Christ. And speculation says that this was the home of Aesop, the, the author of many fables that we're familiar with. It was a place where supposedly gold and silver were first minted. It was famous for industry, like the production of wool and the dyeing of fabric. It was a successful industrial community. It was one of the greatest cities in the world in its heyday. It reached its particular prime or glory under King Croesus. But under King Croesus, the affluence, the comfort, the safety that these people experienced caused them to grow complacent. They got fat and happy. They thought because of all that they had experienced, because of all the resources, because of where they were, they were safe in Sardis. Now, Sardis was built on a mountain about 1,500 feet above a valley floor. It's kind of up on a plateau. There was kind of one small route that you could take in order to enter into the city. So it created somewhat of a fortified presence. The other sides of the plateau were just steep cliffs, and, and it was considered almost impenetrable from enemy military forces. Have you ever seen Edinburgh Castle? Uh, it's a similar kind of thing. It's just kind of built right up on the edge. And, and in order to, 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 to get into the, the castle, you'd have to scale these walls that are almost straight up and down. Now, numerous armies tried to overthrow Sardis, but they were unable to do so. But two particular times in history, they were defeated by their enemies. Once by the Persians, and a second time by the Greeks. And both of these defeats were conducted clandestinely at night. Supposedly, the story goes that there was a, a soldier who was guarding the walls and his helmet or one other uh, part of his uh, armor fell over the side. And they watched as he used a secret pass down the mountain to reclaim his helmet or his sword. And later that night, they came back and kind of with a small group of men, penetrated the city, overthrew the guards, and took control. Sardis's strength really became its weakness. The people got complacent. And they thought to themselves, we don't have to guard these walls, especially late at night. I mean, that's kind of a job nobody wants to do is stay up all night watching for no one to come. And so the choice between guarding the walls and getting a good night's sleep was an easy one for the people of Sardis. And that's when they became the most vulnerable. And so Sardis' weakness actually leads to its defeat. Sardis was a city and a people characterized by a complacent, lazy spirit. Now, Sardis would kind of have a, a bounce back. They would kind of rebound from this, and they would gain a lot of its wealth and influence under Alexander the Greek. And So when the Romans come in and occupy this territory, it's still a powerful, wealthy city, but it not, it's not what it was in its glory days. By the time of John's writing, the people are sinful, they're complacent, and they're wasting away from apathy and indifference. Now, she had a splendid past. A glorious reputation for being this wonderful city. But now she was just a corpse. A shell of her former self. So rather than the church stand out, kind of over and against the mindset of the particular day, the church in Sardis actually kind of adopts this mode of operation. She embraces these values and conduct, and she grows fat and happy as well. And rather than being a thermostat, she functions more like a thermometer. Now, in our house, we have both a thermostat and a thermometer. Both, maybe you have a similar kind of setup. The thermo thermometer sits right above the thermostat. 
And the thermometer just simply reflects the reality of what the temperature is either inside our house or outside. That's all it does. It just simply provides information. It's hot outside. It's 72 degrees. It's cold inside. It's 54 degrees. But the thermostat is significant in that the, the thermostat actually influences the climate. If it's cold in the house, we go over there, we turn the thermostat up, the heat comes on, and the temperature rises. The church should function more like the thermostat. We should be shaping and influencing society and culture. Our presence saturating the communities that we live in, the way we conduct ourselves with our friends, our neighbors and families, should have an impact on the culture and society around us. But Sardis, rather than doing that, it just simply reflected the attitudes and the actions of the city in which they find themselves. So John says, the one who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars is speaking to you. Now the seven spirits of God just simply speaks to the fullness, the completion, the, uh, the abundance of God's ministry. The sevenfold ministry of the spirit is defined in Isaiah chapter 11, in which we read, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is Jesus that John's describing. He has an abundance, the fullness of God's spirit. And this is a reminder that John's saying that as God's people, as the church, we should operate not in our strength, not in the power of the flesh, but we should operate in this, the power of the spirit. We should not rely on human skill or leadership or organization, but we should function under the awesome power of God's Spirit. Now, when the church walks in the power of the flesh, we can do significant things. But we will ultimately fail to convert and to transform the hearts and lives of sinners. But when we walk by the power of the Spirit, then God can do incredible things that we can't even begin to imagine. There will be glory. There will be power. There will instead... The, uh, the opposite of what's taking place here in Sardis, deadness and the lack of life and vitality. The seven stars he holds in his hand, they're the messengers, the ones who speak the word of God. So Jesus is being presented to us in this picture as the one who has in his hand all that we need for ministry as a church. We have the power of the Spirit that fills us. We have the word of God that reveals the nature of who God is the nature of salvation, how we're to rightly respond to God in faith, the authority for him to rule and to reign over his church. Jesus holds everything in his hand that you and I and we as a church need to accomplish our mission. And what is our mission? To grow in love for God and to make disciples who grow in their love for God. We're going to do discipleship in which we grow in our love so that we become a people who Jesus says, love God with all our heart, our mind, our soul, and strength. And then we're making disciples. We're reaching out to people. We're praying for people. We're serving people so that we can make disciples who love God in a similar fashion. The Holy Spirit's the source of life. The Word of God is the authority and the guidance which we need. And we've talked about this before, just in the last couple of months, that as a church, we are committed to the ordinary means of grace. Does anybody here remember what the ordinary means of grace are? Put your hands What's that? Preaching is one of them. Prayer. See, my wife, you better come up. Sacrament. There we go. All right, all three. Go. We've got the preaching and teaching of God's Word. We've got prayer. And we've got the sacrament. Baptism. 
and communion. That's why we partake of communion weekly, is we believe that just like we have prayer in every, every uh, corporate worship gathering, we want the sacraments uh, to be made available to God's people, to remind us and to be as signs and seals of our faith. Because sometimes it's just hard to believe that the gospel is really true. Sometimes the gospel is kind of like this abstract reality, and communion is very real and physical and tangible. It's things we can touch, it's things we can taste, and they serve as signs that point us to the truth that God has in the person of Jesus made salvation for sinners possible. Now, the ordinary means of grace, they're just exactly that. They're ordinary. We're not jumping dirt bikes in the sanctuary. We're not having, uh, you know, uh, celebrity Christians who are going to come and talk. We are committed to the ordinary means of grace. And sometimes you come and you just honestly, you're like, I'm not feeling it. I just, I don't get it. I'm not feeling it. And that's where we walk by faith. Trusting that God works through His appointed means. That even though we may not feel it, that God is at work through His Spirit to rescue, to redeem, to renew us individually, but also as a church. All the power we need is found in the fullness of God's Spirit and in the Word of God. You can think of the ordinary means of grace, the sacraments, prayer, preaching, like trimming the sails in a sailboat. The wind blows, and when we trim the sails properly, then we avail ourselves to the power. We don't always see it, but we can sense its effect, and we shape, and we trim ourselves in such a way that we can rely and depend on that particular power. The Bible says on numerous occasions we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but sometimes we're not sure exactly what that means. But if you imagine, like there's a new Pirates of the Caribbean movie, I saw a trailer coming out. Imagine an ancient pirate sailing vessel. Imagine the wind feeling, filling the sails of this pirate ship. When the wind fills the sail, the boat has power and is moved along. It has the power to move in the direction that the wind is blowing. But if you're a really skilled sailor, and I was reading a little bit about this, you can tack. And basically where it's you move kind of in a zigzag shape, and you can actually go upwind so that you don't have to have the wind exactly at your back. See, it's not our job to control or to determine where the wind or the Spirit is blowing. We just simply trim the sails and we move where He leads us. It's the Spirit that's at work and that's blowing, and He's the one who propels us forward in God's people. And so this Jesus, who has everything the church needs, begins to diagnose this particular first, this particular church, and it's pretty bad. He says, you have the reputation of being alive. That sounds like good news, but he says, but the reality is, you are dead. Now, when you watch a movie, and someone comes in, and they see a person in the chair, and not breathing, their eyes closed, what's the first thing that they do? They run over, they shake them, and they say, wake up. Wake up. When it's a friend or a loved one they care about, they see, they immediately run over, and they say these words, wake up. And this is exactly what Jesus says to the church at Sardis. He says in verse 2, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your words complete in the sight of my God. Rather than being complacent like the people of Sardis, the guards who are supposed to watch the wall, Jesus is saying is don't sleep, don't slumber, but wake up, people of God. Yes, the church of Sardis may have had some glorious past, but right now she's been lulled into sleep. I think this is the case with the American church. I think this is the case with the evangelical church in the Western world. For a long time, especially here in America, we've been lulled into sleep. 
by our marriage with politics. Some people refer to it as the religious right, in which the church experienced significant influence for many decades. Politicians would often make appeals to the Christian evangelical voting bloc. Sometimes they were sincere, other times they were insincere. They were just simply trying to garner enough support to find enough votes so that they could be elected to a particular office. But the world's changing. I don't know if you've noticed it, but the world has changed. The church no longer occupies this position of promise. We've fallen out of favor. And there are a number of reasons for this, and we could talk about those on and on. But here's an important thing. The church was never intended to be a political player. The church was never intended to be a a lobbying or an activist group. Now, yes, when the church is functioning as a church, when we're worshiping the living God, when we're doing evangelism, we're making disciples, it's going to have a tremendous impact on this community and on this society. But we were never intended to occupy a political position as our primary mission. We are called as ambassadors, emissaries of the kingdom of God who are stationed here as an outpost, a representation of the invisible church. The kingdom of God that has come in part, but one day will come in all of its fullness. We're to work as God's people to redeem and to rescue, to straighten out the crooked places where there's sin and evil. We're to confront it with courage and faith. But we're not to be primarily concerned with power and influence. We're called to live as citizens of a new kingdom. And what we see more and more is how the value of God's kingdom and the values of the little kingdoms on this world are in direct opposition with one another. Jesus is saying, wake up. Snap to it. He tells her to strengthen the things which remain. Now, not everything about this church is dead or has died. It reminds me, if you've seen the movie Princess Bride of Miracle Max, it's the character played by Billy Crystal, and he makes this statement. He says, there's a big difference between being mostly dead And all dead. You see, mostly dead is slightly alive. And that's what this church is. And so Jesus calls them to revival. The flame of this church is certainly flickering and about to be extinguished. But Jesus says, stoke the fire. Get the flame of God's love roaring again in your midst. And be renewed. He continues on. He said, I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. They were doing things. They were going through the motions, but the things that they were engaged in did not truly matter. So Jesus says, focuses, focus on what really matters. What is the thing that really matters? But how do we know that we're focused on the things that really count and that will somehow make their way and be complete in the sight of God? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. He says, remember what you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. It's similar because Paul has a a, a very uh, similar instruction to the Corinthian church in which he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, Though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. 
Paul says, I gave to you what was most important. <laughs> if there was one thing that I could communicate to you, it was this. That Christ came to save sinners. He was crucified, he died, and he was buried. And on the third day, he was raised again in accordance with the Scriptures. He says the gospel is what we need to constantly remind ourselves of and remember. That's what Jesus is saying. Remember what you received. You received the gospel. Remember what you heard. It was that God is saving sinners through the person of Jesus. Remember it. Hold fast. Repent. Remember it. Hold fast and repent. That's what we do every single day of our life. I love the quote by John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. As he was coming towards the end of his life, his health was failing, his mind was failing. He says this. He says, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things. That I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. If as a church all we ever do is say that we are great sinners and that Christ is a great Savior, then we'll keep the main thing the main thing. We need to be like John Newton. We need to hold fast, Jesus says, to the gospel. We need to repent and we need to believe it. We need to preach it to ourselves over and over. We need to preach it to one another over and over. And then we need to repent, believe, fight in faith. Now look, Sardis, things were bad. There's no doubt about it. But there's hope. He says, Yet there are a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. See, even in Sardis, where the church had a reputation of being alive, but Jesus says they're really dead, there were still faithful men and women, boys and girls, who were living and following the truth of the gospel. They were committing themselves to obedience. Jesus says that these people can be confident, that they'll walk with him in white, they'll share his glory, and then he goes on, he says that their name will not be erased or blotted out from the book of life. Now, white clothing was worn in Roman times during festivals and celebration. It was a symbol of victory and of purity. What a, what a promise to the men, and, the men and women, the boys and girls, who were faithful in Sardis. Jesus says, you will walk with me in white. You'll walk with me in purity. You'll walk with me in victory. And you can be confident that you will not be erased from the book of life. He's saying, one day you will be with me in heaven. One day you will be in my presence because you've been saved by my grace. Well, what happens if this morning we look in the mirror and we realize that we're not walking in garments that are pure? What happens if we realize that unlike these faithful men and women, that we've stained ourselves with sin? We don't have pure hands. We don't have pure hearts. We don't have pure thoughts. What if you look at your life and you conclude that there's no way that we could be counted in this group, this remnant that Jesus speaks of? What do we do then? Well, the gospel is what we do then. The gospel really is good news. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This is a trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. People have polluted themselves with sin, with rebellion. Those are the people that Jesus came to save. The garments in Scripture are always a symbol of redemption. In the seventh chapter of Revelation, there's this great multitude of people, and they come out of the great tribulation, and they've washed their robes, and they've made them white with the blood of the Lamb. White garments are a sign of being redeemed. 
of being saved by God's grace. Isaiah the prophet, in his uh, his first chapter, 18th verse, he says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In talking to his covenant people, he said, You've stained yourself with sin, but if you come, then I'll cleanse you. I'll wash you white as snow. This is what the blood of the Lamb does. Now these people are not worthy because they've lived perfect, moral lives. Many of them most likely had not. But because they had trusted in the blood of the Lamb, they had washed themselves clean, they were now counted worthy. Because of the righteousness of Christ that had been credited to them through faith in Jesus. So we, a lot of times, even though we wouldn't say this because we know what the Sunday school answer is, we think that God accepts us based on what we do. Or based on what we don't do. So if we get up and we have quiet times and we're in the Bible and we're praying and we're listening to Christian music and we're going to prayer meeting and this thing and that thing, then we feel really good about our relationship with God. But if we stop doing those things or we start doing other things that we know we shouldn't, maybe we start uh, you know, sleeping around or we start uh, you know, doing drugs or we start looking at pornography on the internet, whatever it is, then all of a sudden we feel like there's this chasm. There's this break in our relationship with God. And what we, we, we um, instinctively feel and sense is that it's all about me. It's all about me. Things are good with God when I'm doing the things I'm supposed to. And things are bad with God when I'm not doing the things I'm supposed to. But that's not the way salvation works. God saves us based on Jesus. God saves us by grace, through faith, in Jesus and in Jesus alone. We do not contribute anything to our salvation. We don't earn our way. We don't merit God's favor. We don't live in such a way to create a relationship with God. He does all of that. You and I, no matter how hard we try, can never bridge the gap that our sin and rebellion created. So God bridges that gap for us in Jesus. So we believe the gospel. We repent of sin. And we fight in faith. Over and over and over again. You can be a member of a church. And I encourage you, church membership is good. But being a member of a church does not mean that you're saved. Church membership has value. And something we're instructed to do. But being a member of a church will never guarantee salvation. We're saved when we repent of our own self-dependence. And we trust and cast ourselves wholly on Jesus and Jesus alone. That's what the gospel is. And that's where the life of the Spirit is given to God's people. Let's pray. Father,